1: I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, an unprecedented heat wave has swept Europe into a sweltering, deadly public health crisis. Here in the States, President Biden is soon expected to declare a climate emergency. That's after he spent months trying and failing to push his climate agenda through Capitol Hill. And new surveys show that extreme weather disasters are taking a toll on Americans' personal finances. Those stories and more on our environmental roundtable. Later in the show, hope you're ready for a party. This year's 55th annual Puerto Rican Festival of Massachusetts kicks off on Friday.
2: We have one, a very large parade with all kinds of floats. We uh, all the type of people that come in and we want to be part of this. And when people hear us all over how we advertise it, they're like, I want to learn this culture. I want to eat the food that they're bringing. Uh, so it's become a keystone for us uh, for 55
1: years. How the annual festival has helped Puerto Ricans instill Latino culture and community in Massachusetts. But first, joining me now, Beth Daly, editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Hello, Beth.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back, Kelly.
1: Glad to have you. Also with us, Sam Payne, Strategic Communications Manager for 350 Mass and Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. Welcome, Sam.
0: Thanks, Callie. Thanks for having me on.
1: And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston's Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Bernstein. Great to be with you again, Callie. So let's just start off with President Biden's visit to Somerset, Massachusetts, where he is going to the former Brayton plant, which used to produce fossil fuels and is now in transition to be generating wind power. As we are recording this before his visit, uh, we have some good sense of what he is going to say there. And that's what I want you all to respond to. First, uh, the meaning of the visit, Dr. Bernstein, and what you expect that he might say, given the political failure of his climate agenda very recently.
3: Well, it's a it's a good question. I'm not sure I have as much clarity as as one might expect. I, I think at some level he's going to reckon with the reality that we're faced with, which is that Congress has yet again failed to find a path forward to address the climate crisis, and the powers of the executive branch that he holds can do things. People have talked about, as you mentioned, a climate declaring a climate emergency, which would enable him to largely deal with issues of how fossil fuels are transported into and outside of the United States. But the reality is that we do need Congress to act. And I think it'll be interesting to see how much he simply talks about his, what he's able to do uh, as an executive versus talking to the American people about what what we really need to do here. And and my hope is that he he doesn't uh, necessarily abandon Congress because I think that that remains where we ultimately need
1: to be. Well, one of the things that it's assumed will happen is that um, he will announce some executive actions, Beth. Now, that is not declaring a national emergency. I want to be clear that those are two different things. The word on the street is that he would not yet announce a national climate emergency if he ever decides to do so. Um, but executive action, of course, he can take. But what we know, as Dr. Bernstein has made clear, is that you can't codify a lot of what he might be able to do by the use of his pen by making an executive action because it can go away.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's right. I mean, I'm very curious what's going to happen today. I know there's been, um, and I don't want to predict because this show will air afterwards, but I, I do want to take a step back and Remember why Biden is going to Brayton Point? You know, Brayton Point closed in 2017 after more than 5 decades of being New England's largest and most polluting coal-fired plant in, you know, in New England, hands down. And it it has a complicated past and I think it has a complicated present too. I mean, Mayflower Wind is using a part of the site for sure. But um, but the, um, the part Brayton Point is still actually suing the town Somerset for permission to use the areas like a port for debris, like oyster shells, material to make concrete and fly ash, which is, as you all know, a powder produced by burning coal. So I find it really interesting Biden's going there because it, it, I feel like Brayton Point still represents some of the great futures we're facing, which is wind and renewable energy, but still with a lot of um,
1: the dirty past um, behind it. Um, Sam, pick up on that a little bit. I'm wondering, um, is this kind of... I hate to mention um, Joe Manchin. The reason that uh, his his effort failed is West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin um, decided that he could not support it because it was too expensive. In fact, uh, Sam, before I, I get you to respond, let's take a listen to Joe Manchin speaking on Metro News Talk Line earlier this month about inflation. Inflation is absolutely killing many, many people. They can't buy gasoline. They have a hard time buying groceries everything they buy and consume for their daily lives is a hardship to them. And can't we wait to make sure that we do nothing to add to that? And I can't make that decision on basically on taxes of any type and also on the energy and climate, because it takes the taxes to pay for the investment in the clean technology that I'm in favor of. Okay, so the reason I wanted to play that clip, Sam and Beth and and Dr. Bernstein, is because instead of, chastising him wholly, President Biden is now, I, I mean. Um, there appears to be some behind the scenes. Let's see, what could we get him to agree to on a much smaller scale? So to back to the point that um, Beth has made about puzzling why picking this plant to go to, is it somewhat symbolic of it's not a compromise, but it's sort of that transition thing. He's trying to help Joe Manchin along. It's not quite pure on either end? And maybe this is making a statement in that way.
0: Yeah, I think you're spot on, Callie. I think that Braden Point is a bit of a microcosm of what Biden hopes we can do with our energy policy across the country. And, you know, let's be clear, Joe Manchin is resistant to this because uh, coal is still a significant part of his state's economy. But his resistance is against the wishes of many of his voters. Many of his voters are hoping to have a transition to more renewable sources of power. He claims that uh, economic reasons are why he is so reserved right now. But we all know that the long term economic implications of unmitigated climate change will be far more disastrous than inflation in this month and year.
1: Well, let's start there because we've already seen. We don't have to wait to see what the economic implications are. We can look in our country and certainly let's look across the way in Europe to see this amazing, crazy um, temperatures, which all predicted by uh, uh, climate change experts and, and by meteorologists to come. But it always felt like it was just a little bit, ahead of us like there's some time. And now here it is, Sam, where um, in the UK, they had the hottest temperature ever recorded. They're you know, declaring emergencies in ways they never had to. And in Spain and Portugal, there's wildfires everywhere and people are dying. I mean, and we can get to the United States because much of this is happening here. But that's an amazing example, I would say, of economic impact.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's a reminder that climate change is already here and it's already affecting us. And just as much as we have to be acting to to mitigate its worst consequences, we also have to start adapting already and figuring out how we can make sure that people are able to, to live uh, safely through the summer.
1: And Beth, add to that, please, because will economic impact get people's attention?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it felt really present. I mean, certainly the heat waves that are going on has got the world's attention in a way I've not seen it. I, I I was struck by, you know, we have a lot of these crises happen more and more and more often. And I would argue that people are paying attention. It's just the right people are paying attention. So I, I don't know what the levers are to get that sort of attention uh, before you know, we, we're kind of tipping off the cliff, um, but it feels like we're tottering right now. But um, not to be a pessimist, but I, I do hope, yeah, economics will will, will drive people. What, what also strikes me is, you know, they have these, these calls lately for like a right to be cool, which is very important and, and whatnot. And in some ways, how will that affect climate if people need more cooling? And that in turn will then drive up the climate even more. And I was just pondering that this morning a little bit.
1: Now we're seeing the need for the cooling situation as a result of looking at what extreme heat and temperatures really are.
3: Yeah, I think we've got a whole infrastructure to deal with heating insecurity. And we're making progress towards the other side of that coin, which, you know, the present moment makes clear we need to address. You know, we've actually also tried to innovate to best point. We need a lot of innovation about dealing with heat risk, which is a very different problem than cold risk. Um, we've worked very hard to try and, uh, engage frontline health providers around the country in a paradigm we call patient-centered climate action, where we don't try and deal with heat stress at a population level. Uh, we try and deal with it based upon what we know are the big risks for heat related illness and, and risks of death, which really are, you know, your age, your, your medical health, your prescriptions, and whether you have access to air conditioning. And I think we've worked to, to to really leverage the knowledge that's embedded in frontline healthcare providers, their access to vulnerable groups. We have a health system in the United States that lets too many people fall through the cracks, so it obviously doesn't get to all the vulnerable folks. But that's one piece. We're also working to, to develop in partnership with the Arsh Rockefeller Center at the Atlantic Council, uh, work led by Larry Kalkstein, to develop the first health-based heat ranking system. So this is a system that as opposed to what we get now, we get heat alerts. Those heat alerts actually are not based on health outcomes, stunning as that may be. They're Um, not. They are not. So when we Mm -hmm. get a heat alert from the National Weather Service, that is not an indication that we have hit some health-based threshold. It is simply a percentage of temperature. And 90 degrees in Boston is a very different percentile than 90 degrees in Houston. And 90 degrees in Boston and Houston do not lead to the same health risks for the people of Boston and the people of Houston. What we need are location specific heat warning systems that are based on health. And that's exactly what Larry uh, and Arstrock have developed. Uh, And in Europe right now, one of the pilot sites is Seville, Spain, which is part of this massive heat wave. And so we're seeing in real time this. Ability to give advanced knowledge. This the system works days in advance, so we can therefore work with providers to reach out to people at risk because the providers know whether they're on medications that put them at risk, what their age is, um, their medical history, and and can certainly know whether they have access to air conditioning or can afford it to really get people to safety before it's too late. And and. Just to be clear, these alerts we get from the National Weather Service, there's evidence that shows that in most places, particularly in New England, they're happening at temperatures at which most people are already getting sick and dying, uh, the vulnerable mm. folks. So in short, the frog is already boiling here,
1: right?
3: <laughs> and we're, we're really playing catch up. And, and the point here is that we can do better, we have the knowledge to do better, and we are doing better, we just need to do it faster, and, and we really need to focus on the folks who are most at risk. Uh, and so I, when we think about innovation in this space, I think that has to be front and center.
1: So I just want to underscore the naming system in Seville, Spain, to make it clear for listeners that it's really akin uh, to what they may be familiar with, which is naming the tornadoes and the storms in this country. So it's a similar kind of thing. So if they're naming heat waves and along with it, as you've said for the first time, paying attention to health impact. To your, just to po-
3: clarify one point, Kelly the naming piece is is in Seville, but there are five places in the United States where we're doing this ranking already. Hmm. uh, And there's not naming. It's simply saying there are certain elevations of temperature that create increased risk of harms. And at the lowest ranking, you can think about like a hurricane category one. If you're extremely vulnerable, you have certain medical problems, uh, you're a certain age, that's a category that you have to pay attention to. But for, you know, 90%, 95% of the people, that's not an issue. And, and again, that's why working with clinics is so important, because you're not going to issue the all points bulletin for something that only affects 5% of the population, even if that 5% is the most likely to get sick or die. Many cities around the country are already taking more nuanced approaches, but we haven't really embraced. The, the knowledge that's embedded in the healthcare system to really focus attention and be much more targeted in, in how we address this problem.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Beth Daly of the Conversation US, Sam Payne of Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's TH Chan School of Public Health. It's our environmental roundtable. All right, so I want to ask you all about something that was noted in all of the stories coming from Europe, with particular emphasis on Britain, that most people do not have air conditioning in these countries. And even though it's more widespread in the United States, of course, many, many people do not have it. Yet, well, this is an environmental discussion, and you all are part of an environmental roundtable. We've talked about some of the problematic stuff that comes along with air conditioning units. So, it's kind of I, I i'm I you know, how do you how do you balance that, Beth?
2: yeah, yeah, I know it's it's a great point, right? Like, I mean, I think technology is probably going to be the answer at the end. Um, you know, we have these heat pumps that are being d- designed that are more efficient, still not perfect, but people have a right to be cool. I mean, the fact that most of the world has not had cooling um, up until this point, and we're noticing it in Europe, but let's face it, Pakistan, and I, I've been there in, in, the, in the summers; I mean, it's really, really hot or, wow. or Delhi. Yeah. Um, so. It's going to become something that more and more people need, but how to get there where you're not contributing to the climate problem is going to be a problem that I think technology is going to have to solve. It's not like we're just going to open up cooling centers everywhere every time a heat wave comes. I mean, that's necessary, I believe, and 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 we're always going to do that, but individually, people are going to need something more.
0: Um, what do you say, Sam? I agree with Beth. I think that, you know, we really have a lot of uh, promising technology already with evaporative cooling with central air uh, that we can be utilizing to uh, to better cool homes. But, you know, right now, air conditioners are life saving technology. And I don't think that uh, the environmental concerns we have about them, which are completely valid, should stop us from getting them to as many people as possible. Hopefully, once we have a system set up to distribute cooling uh, to people in need, we can replace that with more environmentally friendly options once they become available.
1: All right. So with this spate of very high temperatures and President Biden's congressional law attempt and failure, there on top of that was before, it seems like now forever, the uh, Supreme Court's ruling, which essentially gutted the EPA. And that, now all taken together, makes it extremely difficult, it seems to me, for the United States to advance to meet its agreements or its promises about trying to reduce our carbon footprint, do all the stuff we said we wanted to do in conjunction with other countries in the world. Before I get you to answer, this is a California Governor Gavin Newsom talking about the Supreme Court's ruling with West Virginia versus the EPA. And um, he made a statement from a charred forest in California recently burnt by wildfires.
3: If you don't believe in climate change, you gotta believe your own eyes. Come to California, the extremes, extreme weather, extreme heat, extreme drought, and of course the ravages of the wildfires. The idea that the U.S. Supreme Court moved to take away one of the most significant and historically powerful tools to address the ravages of climate change is
1: incomprehensible. Sam, weigh in.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think we're in a really difficult position here. Uh, the Supreme Court ruling on the EPA is an absolute travesty and flies against 100 years of precedent. And it's going to make it really difficult for Biden to pass many of the, the powers that we thought he could, uh, being in the, the leader of the executive branch. Uh, And, you know, I think it just, it means that we really have to be looking at Congress, we have to be looking at uh, Joe Manchin and seeing what we can pass legislatively. Uh, That being said, I still do think that Biden should declare a climate emergency and pass everything that he can uh, at the executive level and uh, wait for the courts to challenge him on it because we really don't have any time to spare. We need to be acting now, even if uh, these are impermanent solutions.
1: Sam, if he did all that, would we be back in position to meet most of the agreements and some of the deadlines we've declared ourselves, or will we just be sort of uh, treading water?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I think we would just be treading water. You know, Biden wants to target a 50 percent reduction of 1990 levels by 2030. And I think that's a, a great goal. I think that's a goal that might not even go far enough but even if biden were to utilize all of the executive powers at his disposal we might still fall short of that goal and that is a uh, position that should really be raising alarms for everybody we need to be going at this from all fronts
3: dr bernstein i don't know i'm not a lawyer or supreme court justice the wisdom of our court but the decision is present I do know that the Clean Power Plant was not ever going to get us where we needed to go. And I also you know, wasn't in the room when Senator Manchin was uh, negotiating with Senator Schumer and whomever else was there. Uh, certainly Senator Manchin raises legitimate concerns about inflation. I, I would also ask, no one seems to be talking about the other half of the Senate on the Republican side that doesn't seem to be interested in, in this issue much at all. But Here's another thing I know, which is that, you know, politicians, whether we like it or not, are primarily interested in keeping their elected position and their elected position is a function of the people voting for them. So we can point fingers at our elected officials and our Supreme Court. But I think at the end of the day, we need to point it ourselves. And I, I personally don't want to live in two countries, even though that seems like the direction we're, we're headed. I think it's really important for those of us who see the climate crisis as an urgent issue. I certainly do. Um, As a pediatrician, as a father, I think it is absolutely critical. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of intentional misleading of, of people. But the solution, I think, is not for us to cast our anger out on others who are working to protect their own positions as much as it is to try and find empathy and understanding. As hard as that seems these days, with people who feel, frankly, pretty helpless and hopeless and angry. Uh, And meeting anger with anger, I'm fairly confident, is not a path to getting us where we need
1: to go. Beth.
2: Yeah, um, look, the the, the decision hit everyone pretty hard. I'm going to just be like the half glass full for one reason. I mean, the court did recognize the authority of the EPA to set pollution reduction, not, they didn't. Give it back to the states, not that they were going to, but but I think that 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 allows EPA still some regulatory authority, they could require plans to burn less greenhouse gas emitting fuels, maybe do carbon capture. It's not great, but it's something. Um, and yeah, and I, I agree with Ari and, and, and Sammy, it, it has to, it's Congress holds the key, you know, and, and voters hold the key to get. Congress to pass something that says climate change is, is, is important and a goal, so EPA can then act on that. So I, I, I'm not super optimistic, but I, I do think that all is not lost. It's just going to take more time, and we don't have a lot of time.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and joining me remotely, are Beth Daly of The Conversation U.S., Sam Payne of Better Future Project, and Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We're discussing the latest environmental stories you need to know. Yeah, I'm at the Debbie Downer situation uh, (laughs) only because um, I I agree with you all that it does take, you know, political will and how you get that are usually representatives that are moving in, in that direction. But as we look at these polls and really the only poll that matters is the one on the actual election day, but the ones leading up to the next election days don't have a lot of voters putting this issue high on their list. So to that extent, Joe Manchin wins because most people are like, it's inflation, it's inflation, Um, which is interesting because um, nobody – well, a few people now are connecting that economic impact that we mentioned earlier. And we have these new surveys uh, that I mentioned also that these extreme weather disasters that communities everywhere and around the world are having to meet are taking a toll on Americans' personal finances. So you think all of that, Sam, would sort of get people thinking, hmm, uh, you know, something has to be done. Uh, If meeting these deadlines means that um, we are not just putting uh, patches over this stuff, which actually tends to be more expensive, you know, that's a motivator, even if, if I'm not believing that reducing carbon footprint is going to make a difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny that it's such a low uh, priority issue for voters when 75 percent of Americans say that they are already feeling the effects of extreme weather. Well,
1: this is what I'm talking about. I don't get it. But go ahead.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like one in four Americans also says that they know somebody who's personally been affected by extreme weather. And I think that has a lot to do with the media. I think the media is hyper focused on inflation. And I'm not saying inflation is not a big issue right now, but I think that uh, media has a tremendous amount of sway over what people prioritize. You know, people are already feeling the effects. It really is on the people who are involved to to make a big stink about it, to let people know that this is happening, to connect the dots for people who are watching their financial positions worsen uh, along with uh, public health.
1: Well, I I am sort of gobsmacked. I have to say, Beth, about that. I know you're glass half full, but I'm a little bit gobsmacked that it hasn't had it. it what Sam said is just not registered. There, it, it appears to be a bifurcated response in a very odd way.
2: Yeah, I I I'm on the Debbie Downer face too, but I'm trying really hard every day to find that little some sort of streak of silver. Lining because it is really really hard. I think think Sam makes an excellent point that um, the media plays a really important role of this and and we can complain about the media and we're the media uh, (laughs) on so many levels. But the fact is keeping climate front and center, if that's a, and the scientists shown it's a major crisis, if not the biggest crisis we're facing worldwide, it requires an effort by media to ensure that even when you're talking about inflation, you have climate in, in those stories. Even when you're talking about other things, that climate's still there. And it, sometimes when you read the European press, it, 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 it is there. I, I see it less in the US, but you know, when we talk about, uh, when they t- write about, I just read something, was it Guardian or something about, you know, the heat waves and, and cooling and they were talking about the climate risk in that. And, you know, you gotta make, connect the dots, as Sam said um, very eloquently um for readers because attention spans are short these days really short and if it's not constantly told to people that the climate crisis is here and not going to go away it can fall down the you know down the pecking order
1: hmm. dr bernstein before you respond to this i want to play what i felt was one of the most devastating statements i had heard in a while this is uh you know, last week coming out of uh, looking at the the global fires and extreme temperatures and just the shocking impact of the deaths uh, happening all around. This is United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking at the Petersburg Climate Dialogue this month, and this is what he had to say in no uncertain terms. Excellencies, this has to be the decade of decisive climate action. That means trust, multilateralism and collaboration. We have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. It is in our hands. Wow, I mean, to me, collective action or collective suicide, that that just says it all, Dr. Bernstein.
3: Yeah, it is a potent statement and i think we need to be careful with our potent statements um you know this this disconnect that sam brought out between the number of americans and kelly your, your gobsmackness around <laughs> the number of people who say they're dealing with this crisis in one ways but don't vote on it you know i, I think we're we're we're, we're acting in, in somewhat reasonable ways we see a crisis unfold we use more inflamed rhetoric uh we point fingers and we need to you know <laughs> In my psychiatry rotation, one of my teachers said, you know, that there are lots of definition of crazy, but one of them is when you're faced with a problem and you don't fix it and you keep doing the same thing. Um, the temperature and this has not only been amped up on our planet, it's been amped up on all sides of the climate debate. Uh, I, I think we need to take a step back here and really think about why there's a disconnect uh on so many levels i think it's pretty clear to me at least that when it comes to the the observation of so many people in the country that the weather has changed uh, and how it's affecting them economically and the disconnect being they don't vote on it it has to do with the fact that if you reduce carbon emissions that doesn't change right now it doesn't change within the lifespan of the individuals who are voting and while I know that many people care deeply about their children and grandchildren, they also, you know, we also care about ourselves in our current moment. That's why it's so critical to dig deeper here and think about how climate action relates to the things that are going to matter right now. And that means inflation, and that means jobs, and that means health. Uh, I, 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 in some places, that means equity. I'd like to think that's everywhere, but I'm not sure. Uh, and so that's why we work so hard to connect the, the, the near term benefits that the right now benefits of stopping burning fossil fuels to communities that are affected. You know, I, I find it somewhat um, compelling that many actions that are most impressive on climate happen in states right now, happen in cities, that, that those things are bubbling up. Uh, Massachusetts is a great example of this, and in many cases, the benefits of reduced fossil fuel use are benefiting the states where where fossil fuel production is, is perhaps uh, uh, one of the cornerstones of, of economies, places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, you know, places like that. But I, I think that's critical. I, I also, again, I, I don't see us uh, winning the conversation that needs to be won uh, on climate by putting molecules of carbon before the immediate needs of people. And so when we think about inflation and, 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 and the concern of not just Senator Manchin, but I'm sure lots of people in Congress, the question we need to ask is, is he in fact right that climate action uh, produces inflation? I'm not sure that's true. I think there are lots of options that actually can make most Americans much better off, improve their health, And I think our challenge is that we we continue to think that by engaging on conversations about decarbonization in a let's do it for the future kind of way, uh, we expect people to put their immediate needs aside. And and I think we're not going to get where we need to go uh, in that way.
1: Hmm. Well, I think that's a good place to pause our conversation because it's ongoing. And I thank you all for joining me today.
0: Great to be with you, Callie. Thanks, Callie. Thanks for having me on, Callie.
1: Beth Daly is editor and general manager of The Conversation U.S. Sam Payne is strategic communications manager for 350 Mass and Better Future Project, a Massachusetts-based grassroots climate action organization. And Dr. Aaron Bernstein, interim director of the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, a pediatrician at Boston's Children's Hospital, and an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Coming up, it's music, food, and culture this weekend when local Puerto Ricans celebrate the 2022 Puerto Rican Festival of Massachusetts. Nearly 200,000 Puerto Ricans are expected to attend the festival, which honors the history of the largest Latino group in the state. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.